0: And so glad to have you here with us tonight. i already been asked, Pastor, are we going through the whole book of Revelation? Are we going through the whole book? Let's go through the whole book. And I said, wait till you hear First Sermon and decide if you want to go through the whole book. And we are going to do that tonight. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, as we begin our winter Bible study. For the next eight weeks, this week plus seven more, we'll be walking through the first three chapters, which, as you know, contain already the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Tonight, just chapter one, is an overview or an introduction. Next week, we start church number one in Ephesus. Can't wait to see what God does and how God speaks through this entire entire series. You have a listening guide, too, as well. You can find that, pull it up, and give you a few fill-in-the-blanks there. I know you love to get those. I do. Now, Stephen fusses at me because I always try to fill mine out, me and Wallace. Always try to fill them out, don't we, Wallace, before the sermon uh, is over, just to show we know something, but anyway, it's usually wrong. Apocalypsis, apocalypsis. That's the word revelation. It's apocalypsics. Obviously, you know what word we get from that, right? Apocalyptic, which means we tend to think in terms of end times, the destruction of what is, and then into what is to come. But in reality, the word kalopsis means to cover. So apocalypsis means to uncover, it's a revelation. It's uh, demonstrating or unveiling or revealing what is beneath the cover. And what we're going to discover in the next few weeks is what God is uncovering that was previously hidden in God. It's so powerful to uncover, to take out of hiding, literally is the word, to take it out of hiding and to see what's there. How many of you want to see what's here? I want to see what's here. But some introductory words, let me just sort of encourage us today by avoiding two mistakes that I think people tend to make with regard to revelation. And by the way, there's no S on revelation. Okay, say it with me, revelation. Say, Pastor, I was reading revelations the other day. No, revelation. It's a revelation. That's many chapters, many verses, but it's, it's revelation, singular. And here's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid giving too much attention... To apocalyptic material or to prophetic material or to advanced future uncovered kinds of things. Too much attention could be a problem. Because if you focus too much on what's to come, you might be so heavenly minded you'll be no earthly good. So don't give it too much attention. It can be a bit distracting. And some people are obsessed with this, as you know. And uh, I would caution you to keep it in perspective. But secondly... It'd be a mistake to give it too much attention. It'd be a mistake to give it too little attention. Too little attention. That's in your notes, by the way. Too much or too little. I mean, imagine if you were going on an all-expense-paid trip to a dream destination. Would you just show up at the airport the day you're leaving and say, So, where are we going? What's it like there? What would you do? As soon as you find out you're going somewhere, what would you begin to do? Prepare, plan. What else would you do? Learn, study. I'm I'm that way. Wherever Beverly and I are going, I'm going in advance. I mean, when I get there, I feel like I've already been there because I've seen pictures and I've read descriptions and I've walked those streets, you know how you can do on the internet these days. And so that's the way Revelation sort of is God is giving us some information about our future that we certainly want to consume uh, to the degree that we can understand it. We want to understand it. So we don't want to give little or no attention. And some people would wrongly say, I don't understand all that revelation stuff, so I just don't bother with that. That would be the wrong approach to revelation. We should seek to understand it. We should try to understand it. Because if God has written it to us, then we want to read it and do our best to understand it, to comprehend it, so that we then can, of course, uh, look forward to it and apply it to today. It's really important not to make too much or too little of Revelation or any of this apocalyptic material, anything of a prophetic nature. And no, we cannot know everything. Even as we study this book, we'll leave lots, pardon the expression, of meat on the bone. There'll be a lot left when we're finished because we will not plumb the depths of Revelation. We won't get to the bottom of it. We won't get to the end of it. We won't uncover all of it. Because some of it is being uncovered, if you will. But what we really want to do is make sure that we understand all that God has for us to understand so that we can do all that God has for us to do. We can't know everything, but the some things that we can know, we should know and we want to know. I suspect that's why you're here tonight. And as you study Revelation, as we walk through this text and these verses and this chapter, especially tonight, you might be troubled by what you read. By the images that it inspires, or the descriptions that the text gives us. You may be troubled. That's understandable. But don't be fearful. Because God is faithful. In fact, page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, word after word, the message is clear. The message comes through. The message is consistent. And it is the theme of revelation. Are you ready for this? Jesus wins. So what may be to come may be troubling. But don't let it cause you to be afraid or to be fearful. Because God is, say it with me, faith. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Jesus wins and the good news is so does his church, his body. And that be you and me who are redeemed, born again, bought with the blood and saved by Jesus. We win with him. So the theme of Revelation, Jesus wins. And the point, the point is not to get lost in the future, but to look forward to the future. And the point is to live in the presence, presence still on Christmas, present t, with a view toward the future. So imagine riding in your automobile, driving your car, and you occasionally look down at the dash... And then look up again where you're going. So you almost sort of have an eye down and an eye up. Those gauges are telling you something. You you, you don't always look out. Sometimes you look down. You don't always look down. Sometimes you look out. So imagine prophetic scripture, revelation, apocalyptic material draws our eye and our attention and our focus to what is beyond and out there and, 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 and still to come. Which is good. We need that perspective. But just let that then cause us to look back down where we are because we have to live today. We don't run off the road, right? We don't want to run off in a ditch. We don't want to get all in a problem here. We want to keep between the ditches and keep making progress, keep going forward with a view towards ultimately where we're going to end up. So that really is an important aspect of Revelation. And how do we do that? Well, let me give you a few phrases here. And Number one, we read Revelation to prepare. To prepare, that's your blank there for you under point. Live in the present with a view toward the future. Prepare, prepare for what's coming. Be ready for what's out there. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be caught off guard by it. Be thinking in advance of it and be prepared for what's to come. Be faithful, be faithful. Trust, trust the Lord. These are recurring themes in the scriptures that we want to remind ourselves That even as we read Revelation, trouble may be coming. Be prepared. Be faithful in the midst of difficulty, trials and tribulation. Trust Him when it does come, because it will come. Endure hardships, difficulties, trials, persecution. As I was thinking through this text, I was pulled back to Peter in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Let me turn back there and read this for you. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture with regard to trials and tribulation, to trouble and persecution. Oh, besides that one where Jesus said, by the way, if the world hated me, it'll hate you. If the world persecutes me, it'll persecute you. Love that. But listen to this. Beloved Peter writing, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love that. Don't you love that verse? You know what Peter's saying? Shock. <laughs> the world doesn't care for you too much and... It's hard, and they're going to make it harder. Don't be surprised. Don't act like something strange or out of the ordinary or unfair is happening to you. That's what happened to Jesus. If you follow Jesus, it's likely, guess what? It might just happen to you and me. So what are we doing then? We're preparing. We're going to be faithful to trust in Him when it comes to endure hardships and, last word in the blank, rejoice. 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 Say, how in the world... This is not making a bit of sense to me, Pastor. You're saying hardships may come, difficulties, trials and tribulation, even persecution. Because if we follow Jesus, the Bible says, Yea, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's what the Bible says. And you're telling me to rejoice? Yes, ma'am. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You remember what James said, chapter 1? Rejoice. If. No. When. You face various trials. In fact, even 1 Peter, if I were to continue to read, says something sort of like that. When he tells us that we ought to rejoice in verse 13, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So rejoice. So this is going to be a rejoicing revelation. Troubling, yes, not fearful, because God is faithful. So we can be ready to trust Him through the midst of whatever difficulties we must endure. And all along the way, rejoice. Now because you're the Wednesday night crowd. And because you are the cream of the crop. Best of the best, top of the heap, all that. Because you are, you know rejoice and happy aren't necessarily the same thing. See, happy depends on my condition or my circumstances or my context. Joy depends on who I am in Christ, and that will never change. Joy depends on God being on the throne, and that will never change. Joy depends on the victory that is ultimately ours and forever ours in Christ Jesus. And that deal's done, folks. That ship has sailed. Jesus wins, so we can rejoice, no matter what it is that we're facing. So with those introductory words, are you ready for a little revelation? Let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get with it. The revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, you'll notice there are five points. The something of Jesus. The something of Jesus. The something of Jesus. Well, in the first blank, item number 1 for verses 1 through 3, write this, the revelation of Jesus. And the reason I was intentional to make all five of our points tonight through this particular chapter of Jesus is because this is the revelation of Jesus. Listen to me carefully. Revelation is not first and foremost a revelation of futuristic events or of things to come. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Say amen louder. Amen. Thank you very much. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. Are you reading with me? Of Jesus Christ. So you could look at this, you know how we do with words sometimes. It's the revelation of Jesus. Ta-da, here I am. And or it is the revelation of Jesus, meaning the word of God through Jesus, therefore the revelation of Jesus or that Jesus has revealed. Both work here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show, to unveil, to reveal, to uncover to his servants. The things that must soon, soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel. Angel just means messenger. You tend to think of an angel as the winged creatures that fly, you know, play the harps, sit on the cloud, you know. Angel just means messenger. Bottom line, angel means messenger. Ready? by sending his angel to the servant John John the apostle in all likelihood some debate some question but the scriptural support and the support of the early christian testimony and the witness of the early church this is the apostle john who bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ even to all that he saw blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy Woo-hoo. Don't y'all want to read with me now? Because I'm blessed. We'd all read it together except you've all got 17 different translations. Why don't we do this together? we got it right here. Say it with me. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So the blessing isn't just in the saying, is it? The blessing isn't even in just the hearing. The blessing is in the doing. So remember, there is practical application on every page of the book of Revelation. There is something to do here. The fruit of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed is the one who hears. And who keeps this, what is written in it, for the time is near. So number one, write down, you have all right. the revelation of Jesus. Regarding those things which are to come, and they're coming soon, because they are, the time is near. Now, parenthetically, think about this. This is 1900 and some odd years ago. That John is writing these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, time is near. Imagine what he'd say now. <laughs> it's near. By the way, this time, and if you were here Sunday and you heard us talk about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Time can be chronos, which is a measure of time, sequentially, time. Or it can be kairos, which means a season in time or an opportunity. Opportunity. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, the same word kairos, which is used here, is translated in your Bible, my Bible, as opportunity. So why don't we read it that way? For the opportunity is near. The season is approaching. That appointed time, in time, not not sequentially like... See, remember in the biblical times, that in the eastern world, in the ancient times, they didn't have microwaves that you could cook popcorn in 2 minutes and 33 seconds. Or pop pies in 9 minutes and 45 seconds. Now you know the two things I cook most often. Popcorn and pop pies. They didn't have mile markers on their interstates at every mile to tell you you've just come another mile. Their calendars weren't as precise as ours are and they weren't nearly as intentional or focused or obsessed with chronological time. But when he says kairos, what he's saying is is there's a time, a season, an event, if you will, or an opportunity. It's near. It's near. And we could speculate, and people do, all the time. Write books, sell books, make a lot of money until it doesn't happen. And then they have to say, oops, let me recalculate. Write another book, sell another book. So a whole lot of other people will buy my other book. Until, of course, that time comes and goes. And he still hadn't come. And by the second or third or fourth time, people start thinking, maybe I shouldn't buy this guy's books anymore. Because he didn't know what he's talking about. Which is exactly why Jesus said, if you just hear Jesus, you won't spend a whole lot of time or money trying to figure out what time. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Not even the Son of Man, Jesus said. Not, I, don't, I don't even know, Jesus said. The time or the season or that opportunity as it comes. I don't know. Only the Father, that's His business. That is absolutely in His hand, in His control, in His mind. I don't know. So when is not the point. When is not the point. I've heard, by the way, the funny story that if, if somebody ever with all their calculations and numerology and all their stuff... ...ever figured out actually when it is, God will change it. <laughs> Just to prove the word of God faithful that nobody knows. Right? God doesn't have to change anything. Don't worry about that. The revelation of Jesus is time, opportunity is approaching. It's near, meaning we don't have time... Chronological to waste, because this time opportunity is fast approaching. And can I just say whether it's 1,900 years or, or 19 months, or 19 days or 19 minutes? Can I just suggest to you that the time wherein we stand before the Lord is near? He might return before we say "Amen here tonight, or he may delay another hundred years, because you know what? He's patient? Not wanting that any should perish, but that all, he's patient, he's enduring, he's allowing more and more people to come to faith. But don't worry, you're still approaching. How many of you were at Champions on Sunday at 9.30 and did this exercise with me? You remember this? Do it with me. Come on, every second, snap your fingers, every second. You ready? Come on, One 2, 1,000. Don't get ahead of me, you can't speed up time. Don't get behind, you can't slow it down. Keep it up. You say, Pastor, what are we doing? Some of you know. With every snap of your fingers, you are one second closer to the end of this sermon. Amen. Who said that? Patty? Keep snapping. Don't stop. You are one second closer to the end of this service, of this day, of this week and month, of this year. You are one snap closer. And that snap right there, that's gone. That, that's gone. That snap is gone. Gone. Keep snapping. You are one step closer every time you snap your two fingers to the end of your life. By all means, stop snapping. (laughs) Because you can stop snapping, but you cannot stop time from passing. So with every second, his return comes closer. Our opportunity to meet him face to face draws nearer. And let me just tell you something. It's closer than it's ever been. Like when the old clock, it was a little off, chimed 13 times. 13 times. and The lady of the house said, what in the world? And the husband said, I don't know, but I can tell you this. It's later than it's ever been before. It's 13 o'clock. Near, near. So here's what we have is the revelation of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ and his work, given to us in written word through John the Apostle so that we can hear it and keep it and do it and apply it, meaning now in time. This is the season or the time to take what we learn by way of revelation, what's uncovered, and apply it. To our lives. Number one, the revelation of Jesus. Number two, the work of Jesus. The work. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That, That answers our question there, doesn't it? Who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. And the ruler. Of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The work of Jesus that now draws this Apostle John from the island of Patmos into uh, the work. It's about 95 AD. Some people would take an earlier date. The larger body of scholarship would say this is during the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor, about 95. And a great persecution breaks out against the people of God. Tremendous persecution. And the seven the seven churches, they represent seven actual or literal churches in Asia Minor. In fact, we have a a picture for you if we could put that up, guys. Uh, Josh, you with me? There it comes. There it is. So here's Patmos, which is an island about 35 or so miles off of the coast of Turkey, Asia Minor, Turkey. Common day, contemporarily, Turkey. And then you see the churches and you can run the route. This is a circular letter, as it were, that'll go from church to church to church, touch each base. And we'd start at Ephesus and go around the clock. Smyrna, Pergamus, Theotiris, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and back again. Patmos is down off there. It's about 35 miles. It wasn't actually a prison colony officially, but there's no question that John's been exiled to there. And from there, he's writing these letters, this letter, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And you know there's a lot of debate and it's fun to think about what those seven churches represent. Some people think those churches represent all of the churches then and now. Each of the seven with a different application for a different situation or circumstance that a different church might be facing. So the seven churches represent all the churches then and all the churches now. He's just talking to churches. Some people would say that the seven churches represent seven ages or eras or dispensations in time. So that the first church represents the first church age and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And most people think who follow that logic that we're living in Laodicea. Let's hold that until we get to Laodicea and see how it compares. Here's what I think the answer is. Yes. Yes. That's what I believe the answer is. Terry, the answer is yes. I think it speaks to all churches. But I'm not saying it doesn't speak to the development of the church as it marches through time, from that time until this time. I think the answer is yes. By the way, there's one particular answer you must be always prepared to give when studying Revelation. Do you know what that is? I don't know. Practice it with me. You know? I don't know. You have to be prepared to say that. Because if you make up an answer, you'll be lying with regard to the testimony of Jesus. So don't say what you don't know, and I'm going to try hard not to say what I don't know. Because it's fair to say, in fact, it's right to say, oftentimes, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Sometimes research will help you out. Sometimes even after research, you return and you have to say, you you know what? Because that hadn't been revelationed yet, uncovered, revealed. What we see in this text is so powerful though. The work of Jesus. Uh, Listen to it again. And we're we're understanding what he's writing. Grace to you, peace, this one who was, is, and is to come. The seven spirits, we got it. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Witness is the word martyr. So Jesus was the first faithful martyr. This letter written by the way to and through John the Apostle. Who is on the island of Patmos while a great many of his Brothers and sisters in Christ are paying the ultimate price, martyrdom, for their faith at the hands of Domitian. This is the time in the era when Christians are torn apart in stadiums, fed to the lions, or burned at the stake. This is the time. And in the context of this, the word to John is, is, I've been there, I've actually done that. A faithful witness he was. But for our good, he was the firstborn from the dead, referring to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the ruler. He's ascended, he's at... He's at the right hand of the Father over all the nations. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Which is one of the great reasons why we have nothing to fear about what there is to come. Because what's coming is God's wrath upon human sin. Man's rebellion. And we are trusting in Christ and our sin has been removed. So we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of his son. And that's exactly how you want God to see you when God sees you. Because Jesus has purchased your clothing. Put it on. So that you can stand before the Father unashamed and uncondemned. Because if any man's in Christ, the old is past. Behold, all things have become new. He's freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, a community, a nation, a holy nation, priests. To His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and forever. Oh, and don't forget this with regard to the work of Jesus. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those Who pierced him. So the time is near. And Jesus is coming again. So Jesus pre-existent God. Without whom nothing was made that was made. Remember John chapter 1. We've already seen this. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. He was in the beginning. He was there. Nothing was created without him. Pre-existent God. In flesh Emmanuel. God with us. Who lived a sinless life. And died on a cruel cross qualifying to take our sin upon himself and pay the penalty in full, was buried and raised again as God's stamp of approval that the price has indeed been paid, and the offering was sufficient for all. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting. You know what he's waiting for? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is this the season? Has the opportunity finally come so that he can come back for his church, for the body of Christ, for you and me? And it could happen at any time. Jesus was clear on that. We read in Matthew but at a time and an hour you do not expect, expect it. Y'all know what rapture practice is. Has it been so long since we've done anything on end times that you've forgotten what rapture practice is? Don't hurt yourself. Only do this under the advice of a physician. I'm just practicing. I'm just practicing. Because when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised, we too will be caught up, raptured, raptured. We'll be caught up with him to meet the Lord in the air and thus we'll always be with the Lord. That's coming. I'm telling you, that's coming. He is coming on the clouds. And in that moment, even those who pierced him will have to, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The work of Jesus is complete for us and is to be completed in and through us. Because salvation has come, is coming, and wonderfully will come. Number three, the words of Jesus. Don't panic. We will get you out before the rapture. (laughs) Maybe. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom... And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So I want you all to understand, John is not a shoplifter. He's not a criminal. Unless, of course, it's illegal to give testimony of the grace and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To tell others about Christ. To live your light and let it shine. That's the only thing he's here for see, remember now that the Christians were in an awkward position. The, Jew, the Jews rejected them because they followed this Jewish rabbi who they considered to be accursed. And the Greeks despised them because they made the Greeks feel awfully weird about their idols and all of their immorality. And they wouldn't play along. And the Romans hated them because they would not bow the knee or or the head in submission, and say, Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. So Christians in this day and time, they're getting it from all sides. They are surrounded. They are surrounded. And John is a participant or a partner in this tribulation, and is having to patiently endure in Jesus, on the island of Patmos, on the account of God, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now some of you say, what's that mean? But some of you who have a Pentecostal background know what that means. I was in the Spirit. It's an unusual, miraculous connection. It's it's a filling of the Holy Spirit. A saturation and overflowing in the Spirit. What do we say? Redeeming the time for the days are evil. And don't be drunk with wine. That's senseless and reckless. But be filled with... With the Spirit. It's not all that mysterious. John is just full of the Holy Ghost. Can I say Holy Ghost today? Can I say that? He's filled with the Spirit of God. He's so in tune with the voice of God because of the presence and the power of God in him. The Holy Spirit of God. He was in the Spirit. Not in the flesh. Not in his imagination. Not in his head. He's in the Spirit. Which confirms the source of this message and of this letters of God. Because it's come by the Spirit. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Which I think everybody ought to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Can I get an amen? Don't just go to church. Be church. At church. Anyway, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. If somebody came up behind you and let a trumpet go. Would that get your attention? Sound like a trumpet saying, "Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea." And so there is a word, the word of Revelation, with words for the churches, for the people, from John, a person exiled. By the way, who I'm sure they thought they had gotten rid of. But let me tell you how God works. See how God works. Just exactly when the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews rejoiced in John's absence. God said, got you right where I want you. Got you right where I want you. By the way, I think all the devils of hell rejoiced when they put Jesus in that tomb. And God said, got you right where I want you. Got you right where I want you. As John's in the cave on the island of Patmos in isolation. Not that he was there alone. But he's in isolation don't know who else was there no he was there no he was in the spirit and then suddenly God had him right where he wanted him and called him with the sound of a trumpet by the way some of you with us Beverly and I you've been to to Greece and to the island of Patmos this is the rugged coastline of the island it's not how the whole island looks but it might look something like that with the absence of those buildings And now, modern day, if you sort of circle around in the next one, you'll see uh, overlooking from the mountainside the cliffs where the cave was in all likelihood, or at least according to the early church history. There's a 4th century church built there. Uh, The current monastery of St. John's built on top of it, and that's how we have a pretty good indication within a few hundred years of the location. And the cave of the apocalypse is down below. Go to the next picture. I took that with my iPhone, by the way. Just wanted you to know that. And here is the, um, uh, the, the, the cave of the apocalypse under which is the cave of, of St. John. It uh, doesn't look now like it looked then, if you'll see the next one at all. Uh, the Eastern Church has a way of sort of getting in there and decorating. A Greek Orthodox Church, and so it's sort of set up in that way as a shrine. Um, and, and, and this is not how it looked when John was there. Uh, but I did, I did see John. I took a picture of John just outside the cave. He was just right out there working in the uh, I said, hey, John, how's it going? You're looking good for a guy 1,900 years old. Two, 2,000. That's not really John. That is an actor, of course, a character. Well, that's where John was, when John was on the, in the Spirit, right where God wanted him to be when Jesus spoke. So let me, before I move on and hit the last two points quickly, in Baptist minister terms. Whenever you're at your darkest moment, whenever you're in your quietest, loneliest, furthest, fearfullest, listen. You'll be surprised how many times God finally has you at a place where you will listen to His voice. The words of Jesus and then the appearance of Jesus, and we'll wrap up. Listen to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's Jesus. Read Daniel, you'll see the connection. Clothed with a long robe, that seems priestly, and with a golden sash that looks kingly around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow, See the Old Testament images of the Almighty of God. His eyes were like a flame of fire, of purity, and of holiness, of perception. His feet were like burnished bronze. There's a sense there of holiness and transcendence, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John knew what it was like to come out of that cave facing the east. The sun to come up and nothing to block the sun's radiant view. Just to have a face full of the brilliance of the sun. But now in the spirit sees the sun. And all of his glory and all of his radiance. I was wondering what you and I, what would we expect Jesus to look like if he showed up today? You know. Would he be wearing a suit? Would he be wearing... Jeans and a t-shirt. Skinny jeans and a tight t-shirt. Would he be wearing flip-flops and cargo shorts? What would he be wearing? I was at Ridgecrest one time, and I was preaching there for Sunday school week. And they had a testimony on Thursday, and I'll never forget it. The man who played Jesus in one of the biggest films about Jesus that ever has been produced. Bruce Marciano, I believe is his name. The man who played Jesus. They played a clip of the movie on the screen. And there he was in his biblical costume with all of the context of the biblical days and the story of the narrative. And when the clip stopped, the same guy walked out on stage wearing a white shirt and a red tie and his sleeves rolled up to here. It was a moment for me, y'all. Because in that moment, the Jesus there on the cross with blood and the crown of thorns, this robe torn away, suddenly walked out. And you, you know what he looked like? I was wearing a white shirt and a red tie in that very moment. Now, don't get to thinking that Jesus looked like me. I am not saying, may Jesus be more like me. I'm not saying that. But what I was seeing in that moment, what occurred to me in that moment, is how relevant Jesus is. And how present Jesus is. And how current Jesus is. When he comes and appears and makes himself known. And in this case, you cannot miss the awesome, radiant glory of Jesus. Appearing here as prophet, priest, and king. That will get your attention. It certainly did John's. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah said something like that, didn't he? Woe is me. You know, I'm interested every time I hear somebody debating about the postures of prayer or worship. Pastor Stephen mentioned the posture of prayer. People are talking about, well, you have to stand. You have to stand. You have to sit. Hey, you know what? Probably the Probably the most appropriate posture in prayer is the one we never get to. Flat on our face. Flat on our face. Not down as dead. We don't ever get to that one, do we? I fell at his feet, though dead, but... So John is stricken by the radiant glory and the majesty and the purity and the holiness and the power of Almighty God, Jesus, standing there. And he falls before him on the ground like dead. But, but, he laid his right hand on me. Let me say that again. He laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Say that with me, fear not. Say it again, fear not. Say it one more time. Fear not, I am. You can stop right there. Fear not, I am. Fear not, I am. Sound familiar? Might take you back to Exodus. Who shall I say that you are and who sent me? And God said, I am. Yep, I am. That's all you need to know. I am. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Do you know what Christians fear more than anything else in this day and time? Death. Because around every corner, on every day, is death for Christians. And Romans put them up and say, you got one shot at this, guys. Every year, you got to come to the temple, put a little incense on the altar, and you got to say, hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And if you don't, you die. But here's what Jesus says, the thing you fear most, been there, done that. I got this. Fear not. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, well, good news, it's one of those times where Jesus is going to tell us exactly what it means. Because the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What we have here, this fifth point, is the assurance of Jesus. In case you missed one, the revelation of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, and now the assurance of Jesus. It's all about Jesus, by the way. It's all about Jesus. In such purity and power, John collapses. Jesus touched him with his right hand and said, Don't be afraid, because what you fear most I've overcome. And the image of the stars and the spirits of the guardian angels, the messengers as we said that they are, some debate whether they're angels, messengers from heaven, guardian angels that oversee the church or churches. I, I like that idea a little bit, <laughs> to think that we have an angel watching over us. I like that. could also mean angel as in messengers, and some have speculated, well, that's the pastor or the elder or the shepherd or the bishop who oversees and cares for and has the message for the church from God. But I'll tell you, any way you slice it, any way you cut it, what you see here in this scene is the church. Seven golden lampstands are the churches. Jesus is in the midst of, in the midst of the church. In the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. That's good news. That's assuring. That's reassuring to a church that continues to wonder if it's got a future. To wonder if we're going to be relevant. If anybody cares or if we're even going to make it. If they don't pass this or if they don't pass that. And if they do this and don't do that. We may not even be here. And oh my goodness, they're going to tax us. So much to worry about. So much to be concerned over. So much to be afraid of. Until you realize that Jesus is in the midst. Jesus is present. He's right there. And these angels are in his hand. In his hand. He's got it firmly within his grasp. In his grip. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the church. I got you. I got you. Safely in my right hand. And by the way. Remember that Jesus is at the Father's right hand. The place of power, and authority, of grace and mercy. Jesus is at the Father's right hand and the church is at the right hand of Jesus. That's a good position to be in, amen? That's a good place to be. In the right hand of Jesus. When I think about that, I think about Jesus sitting up there in all of his glory. You know, And he's at the right hand of the Father. And he looks... ...down his right arm, beyond his right shoulder... ...and he sees all this yuck going on in the world... ...and the world that he's created and its creation... ...that he was a full participant in. And he sees our politics. and He sees our social issues. He sees our tension. He sees our failures. He sees our sin and immorality. And he sees our rebellion and our rejection. He sees the devastation of sin. He sees his church. And he sees that fearful look on their faces... And he sees the concern of their heart. And he sees their wonder if they're going to make it, if they're going to be okay, if they can do it. And then his gaze fo- focuses and sharpens from all of that yuck around him to his people, to his body, to the church, to you. And he says, hey, look up here. I got you. Don't be afraid. I have you in my right hand. Don't fear. I got you. There's a lot of bad stuff on the horizon. That time is near. But you are in the hand of the one who, as at the hand, who created everything. I hope you won't take this personally, but I'm going to try and tell it anyway. I was walking through the hallway just a few weeks ago. Took out of here, went down the hallway, you know, the cafe. Wasn't many people in there, but there was one fella in there. He's not in here, I don't think. If you are, not tell anybody. He was sitting there, and he had the TV on, or somebody had the TV on. He was sitting in front of that TV, and it was saying what it says all the time. And I looked at his face, and he had the most concerned, troubled look on his face. He was into it. He was listening carefully, and it was bothering him deeply. I didn't know his name. I hadn't met him before. You know, lots of people work out in the FLC, come and go, that sort of thing. But I just walked by. I didn't really mean to be uh, ugly. I wasn't trying to be ugly. I just sort of said to him kind of jokingly, I said, hey, you know how that's going to turn out, right? He said, I have no idea. How many of you know what I said next? Jesus wins. And I'm here to tell you, he's got you. So the question to close on would be this, and it's your time to take it so I won't rush it, but what does what we learn about the future mean to you, to me, today? What's the application? What does it mean? That's an important question. Because blessed is not only one who reads and hears, but the one who keeps, who does. So what's it mean? I would suggest that we not act like we're afraid we're going to lose. I would suggest we remember this world is not our home. We are citizens of another country and citizens of another kingdom. Stewards of this one, yes, but this one comes and this one will go and the one that will stand forever is the one you are a citizen of. He's got you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day, and God bless.